And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, and welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. And today we're reading another short story from Difficult Woman. We're reading I Am a Knife by Roxane Gay. I'm sorry, every time we do the intro now, all I can think of is the time I accidentally introduced myself as you, and it, like, takes a lot of self-control to not... Do that uh, again? To not laugh. And, uh, yeah, and also do it again, you know? Yeah, I understand. That went in the bloopers, I think. I think it went in the most recent blooper one. Oh, then you guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> that was a day, you know? I understand. I get it. I feel like, I don't know. I feel like I've been having a week. It's been a week. Yeah, same. <laughs> Neither of us wrote a summary, so who's going to wing it? <laughs> All right, so this is a short story. It's about a woman who does not have a child and wants one and whose child died and who has a twin sister and a husband who is a hunter. Is that? (laughs) Those are all the parts. It's true. It is more dramatic than that, but yeah. Twin sister almost dies in a flashback and uh, the woman cuts off a drunk she cuts out a drunk driver's heart and gives it to the twin sister. You should yeah. really read it. I've just spoiled it for you, though. <laughs> As we do everything that we talk about in this show. Yeah. She's a knife. <laughs> she doesn't have a name. As I think most of Gay's characters don't in this. That's true. That's true. Yeah, she's a knife. She comes from South Florida. Do we want to talk about what we think being a knife is? Because I have no fucking idea. But she says she's a knife a lot, and it's definitely a metaphor for something. (laughs) Except for one moment where she's not a knife because she's sad. Yeah. She's vulnerable in that moment. Yeah. So I was, I thought it was also interesting, though, because it's not just that she's a knife. Her husband is a gun. Yes. So I was thinking about the connotations of both of those things. Like the gun is obvious to a certain extent because it's very phallic, right? But like it's oh. all. I didn't catch that. Nope. Oh, maybe it's not. <laughs> the gun is very phallic. <laughs> well, knives are phallic too, though, aren't they? I think they can be, but I think that knives are also more of a precision instrument in a different way. I was thinking of it as. To a certain extent, a gun is in some ways more powerful, but a lot less accurate than a knife. And there's a lot of, or there can be a lot of unintended side effects. And also a gun is, you know, typically a killing tool, either for humans or for animals. And in this, in this case, we see it as a hunting thing and they seem to hunt with like a lot of responsibility. You know, they thank the animal, they use pretty much every part of it, um, but a knife is a multi-purpose tool, could be used for taking or saving life, which we see it used as both in this. And also a knife is a much more personal tool. Yeah. Because even if you're using it to defend yourself or using it in violence, you have to be up close and personal with whoever you're with. Whereas a gun is much more of a distance distance tool. So I think part of it talking about like this whole like emotionally vulnerable thing. What Harmony was talking about is that this whole story is about a woman who becomes infertile after losing her child in labor, like the child is stillborn, and like how that event has essentially changed her and her husband's lives. And it, I, I thought the emotional aspect of, of being close versus being far away to something emotionally was interesting in the idea of a knife and a gun because with a knife you're right there and with a gun you're farther away but you are still part of the action and you're still part 
of the consequences, just not in quite the same way. Yeah. Okay. I didn't make that connection there, but I did notice that, yeah, guns were, that's what I had written down too, that guns were a distance tool and that they were primarily for killing and knives are multi-purpose. She also refers to herself as a butcher. And one of the things that the story starts off with her and her husband hunting. One of the things that happens after they hunt is that she does butcher the animal, but she never eats any of the meat. She doesn't enjoy the taste of animal flesh, is what she says. Which is interesting because she drinks (laughs) its blood and eats chicken at a different point. Yeah, it's weird. But she also, she also waits when her husband, when they're hunting, she's with her husband. Her husband is the one who does the actual killing. And then he takes his knife out to like, finally kill the animal all the way, the deer that they have shot. And instead, they both wait for it to die. And then she takes her fingernail because there's some weird surrealist elements in this story in which she can actually cut with her fingernail and then kills the animal after it has already died. Which I thought was really interesting because as far as I'm aware, like as far as cruelty practices go with hunting, like the goal is to, you know, one shot, one kill sort of situation. And if that doesn't happen, to then put the animal out of its misery as quickly as possible. So I thought it was really interesting that she does have it wait until it dies from the one gunshot wound. And she says that they wait for a long time to, for its heart to stop. Yeah. So it's just suffering there. And it's weird too, because like Maggie said that it sounds like they're ethically killing and on the surface they definitely are but like they both get weirdly excited about killing and it's very strange and very pagan and animalistic what did you make of that yeah they cover each other in blood and then fuck well (laughs) let's just be real about it that's what happens directly after um i thought of it so they have a lot of sex in this short story which makes sense Um, because they're married and seemingly in like a loving and consensual relationship Um, but all of the sex that they have kind of shows a different emotional and intimacy purpose and at first I was like what the fuck is happening but the more I thought about it the more I saw the deer as a metaphor for the life that they almost had together as a family and also with like the deer dying slowly right like that's probably what it felt like to her on that car ride while she was in labor while like the baby was dying and she was and she was almost dead as well you know like I think it was all this like I don't know just all a metaphor for this emotional pain of this loss that they're still contending with and in a lot of ways they use sex as a coping mechanism in this short story they like be together again even though they aren't going to create a new life and so at first when I read it and honestly even today when I read it for the second or third time I was still like what the fuck is up with the deer thing but the more I think about that the more I think that's the beginning of that like established connection okay that's really interesting so then if we're talking about the deer she compares herself to the deer um directly she says on page 189 here we go okay so they've just killed the deer my husband undressed me slowly then stood and stared at me naked shivering next to the animal he killed i wondered if he could tell us apart The woods around us were so silent, I felt a certain terror rumbling beneath my ribcage. So she talks about them, like, not be him not being able to tell them apart. And I think this is interesting because the husband, as we mentioned earlier, wants to kill something. And then when we open the book, it talks about them fucking before the hunt. And she talks about him marking her and then her letting him. And there's very much like a prey sort of position that she's placing herself in but she's placing herself in it consensually yeah it's very clear that like she is this is stuff that she is allowing to happen rather than stuff that is just happening which i also found interesting because in the next paragraph they're then covered in deer piss because they're hunting (laughs) yeah exactly that is weird weird i guess i don't know i mean nothing against you hunters but i didn't know that you had to do that so Interesting. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So is she trying to be the deer then, like to be the loss? Or is the deer then taking on a different space, like something that her husband can 
kill. I I don't know. How does that work with the metaphor that you just set up before? I think it connects to the end of the story because at the end of the story, we see her husband's guilt over the whole situation, I think. So at the end of the story, when they are on their way to the hospital, what has happened and what is mirrored to her twin sister's situation while she's giving birth is that they are essentially out in the middle of nowhere in a snowstorm and it's going to take hours for an ambulance to get to them. So her husband takes her or tries to take her to a hospital, which is over an hour away in a snowstorm. And the entire time he puts the impetus on himself to get them there safe. And he says over and over again that he's going to get her there and everything's going to be okay. And like, he is going to make it okay, essentially. And then it's not. The baby dies in the truck with them, which is horrendous and horrific. But I think that it relates to a feeling of guilt. Whereas whether or not something is or isn't his fault, he takes, I think he takes and harbors a lot of blame surrounding that situation because he was the person driving the truck and because she is only there in that physical location because she describes it as it's not that he can't, he won't leave where he is. He can't leave where he is. Yes. Yes. Okay. That, that's interesting. So there are a few things I want to talk about there in what you just said. So we were talking about the husband harboring guilt and we can see throughout the story that they seem to carry a fairly like traditional gender roles relationship. And he seems to be very much like a manly man. I mean, he's a hunter. That's like a manly man activity. <laughs> so do you think that's why he's harboring the guilt? Because he is the protector? And she also places him kind of in the role of protector a lot, it seems. Yeah, I think so. But I think also probably there's just the fact that like he's the one driving the truck, right? Like, Yeah. Yeah. And then so you I think talk- it's both. Okay. Okay. And then you talked about how he can't live anywhere else. So in that scene where we're describing how he can't live anywhere else, uh, she talks about her family coming from South of Florida and him not being able to handle being around people who don't look like him and who don't speak the same language. That was interesting because I wondered if perhaps she was Latino um, which I think she could have been, but we don't really get any description, physical description of her, so we wouldn't know. And if that, like, complicated their relationship at all. (laughs) I don't know. What did you think about that? I also had that thought, but, like, I really don't think we're given enough context Context. in the story to, to make any kind of actual conjecture around that. I partially took that as... I guess a w- she frames her husband's faults in a very Endearingly. in a very kind way, and that's one of the places I think where you see those. There's a, there's more of a layer to it, right? Like it's not just her forgiving him for it. If that makes sense, I think that there is a little bit more of a cutting edge to that criticism of him. But then also we don't dive into his racism at all, or like even if it isn't like blatant racism like his his uncomfortableness like we don't dive into that at all after that she just accepts it as a sacrifice that she makes to be with someone she loves that she has to live in the area where he and his family live which is emotionally damaging for her also because she doesn't seem to get along with her in-laws and she is in a power struggle with her (laughs) mother-in-law Okay, but I also felt like the story itself, because her sister seems to understand why she would want to live away from her family or wants to, like, choose her husband above all else, it seemed like the story was giving us an okay, like a check mark for that decision. Not that, I don't know, not that we as women should really be placing any sort of, like, morality towards decisions like that, but how did you feel about that because it is emotionally damaging for her. I think something I appreciated about this story for gay from gay was that this narrator made it very clear that everything she did was her choice. And I appreciated the fact that she was pointing out some of her husband's flaws 
because it felt like she wasn't just idealizing him and that she felt like she was going to have some like picture perfect compared to some of Gay's other narrators she feels very like clear-headed and kind of just like this is just the choice that I made because I decided that this was the choice I wanted to make because I love this person so like I was ultimately okay with it but it did give me like a lot to think about and you're right actually I thought I didn't pick up on the implication that her twin sister so they say explicitly in the story that her twin sister gets why she wants to live where she lives but I took it more as that her twin sister got why she wanted to be with him not why her twin sister got why she would want to run away so it's interesting that you frame it like that oh okay yeah I wasn't meaning to frame it necessarily and run away it's just like I guess maybe just choosing her husband above her other needs because I feel like in the context or at least, yeah, in the world that I live in, there's a lot of effort in my personal world, like as a woman in the 21st century, who's been hyper exposed to feminism, (laughs) there's a lot of pressure to make sure that my decisions aren't for a man and, you know, are the healthiest decisions for me. But this narrator frames it like her healthiest decisions are to to sacrifice stuff for her husband. And yeah, it was just an it's just an interesting sort of um dynamic to read about in this world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think though that in a lot of ways that's realistic because a lot of times there is no clear cut healthiest decision. Or the decision that would potentially make you, like, healthiest is not always the situation that's going to make you happiest simultaneously. Yeah. And so I think that's what I really appreciated about this narrator, was I felt like she was making choices with both of those things in mind. And I think I also felt okay about it, because while she's in this power struggle with her mother-in-law that, like, makes living there a little bit more difficult... She almost seems to have a little bit of fun with it, like a little (laughs) bit of fun in like showing her mother-in-law up, like she's extra polite to get under her skin. And then when they leave, she gets in the truck and starts like heavily making out with her son as like a- Every time too. (laughs) As like a power move. So like, are those necessarily the best ways to deal with this situation? No. Is it maybe the most fun way to deal with that situation? (laughs) Maybe, you know? So like, I think all of that made me feel, I guess, good as a reader about the decision she was making. And again, the fact that she felt clear headed to me, at least about his faults and like, didn't seem to be idealizing the situation also made me feel like, okay, I kind of get these sacrifices and why she would make them. I get that. I get that too. I also feel that. And I think that this kind of, when we originally read the first two stories from Difficult Woman, we talked about whether or not this was a feminist book. And then we brought in some quotes from Gay talking about how it's a book about relationships essentially between men and women. And I mean, that's obviously what this book is. But one of the themes I picked up on within this book is that this character relies heavily, like this story, even though it's about her loss, it's also about her relationship to two, to two people, her twin sister, who I'm not sure. Yeah. It it is talked about how it's her twin sister and her husband. And she's both like very reliant on them. And it just, I'm, I'm not reading it from a place of judgment, but it was kind of, refreshing to see it cast this way I guess to like be vulnerable with someone and have it be okay because this person can't survive our narrator can't survive necessarily without her husband and her sister she is like so entwined with them that she's not an independent being but that doesn't make her less of a being yeah absolutely I also thought that the family relationships in this one were really important her and her twin sister are described in a couple of different ways. The first is that they are polar opposites who gain satisfaction from the way the other one lives, and that makes them feel like they are having a whole experience. So, like, her narrator is married, and she's doing that whole, like, traditional married life 
trying to have a family situation. And her twin is like doing the opposite of that. She is very much like living it up, having a good time. It's implied that she's kind of got like a man in every state sort of situation. And she's not judged for that. In fact, her twin, her our narrator loves that about her because it makes her feel like she is also able to have those experiences. So right away, we're dealing with a situation where the narrator at the very least needs at least one other person to feel like she's having a whole experience. And I agree with you that she has that same relationship with her husband, but also going into like the magical realism aspect of this book, it's also implied that they like feel the same things sexually, which yeah. is like, <laughs> weird <laughs> for me. Not gonna lie. I read that. Up. I was like, okay, I'm, I don't even really want to unpack that. But like, Incest for the Wincest? Uh, oh, it was just the whole thing. Um, I don't even remember where I started here. Oh, I guess uh, in the family dynamic situation. I think it's also important that those relationships, especially with her sister, exist, though, because she is not close to any of the other families. I mean, like, she's physically far away from her, from the rest of her family. She's not close to her yeah. in-laws. So she is having, I think, to rebuild what it means to really be a family unit, especially after the loss of the child and not being able to, it seems like conceive again. And therefore like this traditional family picture she had in her head is breaking down. And then her sister comes to say, and she's able to like start to a certain extent, I think putting those puzzle pieces of family back together for herself. Yeah. But she's really angry while she does it. Oh yeah, for sure. But She's able to do it anyways, (laughs) I think. Like, I think that she is doing, she is feeling upset and angry and jealous and all of those things. But also, she doesn't particularly take it out on her sister. Like, she still slots those people into her family, even though she's still having, like, negative experiences related to the trauma that she has with this whole scenario. That's true. She does kind of take it out on herself though. There is some implication of self-harm and then like kind of wanting her husband to harm her, which I guess brings us back to the deer and the idea of prey. Cause I feel like, I feel like I still haven't really figured that one out. <laughs> yeah. And I think one of the ways that she, that they, or at the very least in her perspective, she ends up using sex is as punishment, especially at the end, right after the baby's been born. She talks about the fact that it hurts, but like, she wants it to hurt, essentially. It's definitely partially connecting through punishment. Yeah. So... I guess, I don't know, in your notes, you wrote how you really relate to a lot of these things. And I'm guessing, like, I've kind of talked a little bit about my context and trying to grapple with the story and the story's concepts. How how do you relate or how how are you grappling? <laughs> I think something that I really relate to, I guess, is going back to her relationship with her husband, not in the punishment way at all, but talking about, like, the healthiest versus the happiest decisions that you can make. Like... When I moved to Washington, for example, that was something for me, her whole meditation on the choices she makes, like for him and why, and, and just that whole like thought process of, of, of balancing decisions that keep you healthy and keep you happy is something that I really related to. I think especially now that I am married and like, I have to think about my choices in the context of my husband, because like, that's just kind of what marriage and really like long-term relationships in general are Uh, that was just a lot of stuff that I identified to and then also I think that as somebody who does want to have more of a traditional family unit this is more just like me being a scaredy cat in the future but like one of my great fears in life is that idea of like child loss like that and like trying to rebuild after it so like some of the places I identify with this are like from my experiences and having to make kind of similar choices and just like the thought process that I was going through. And then some of it is that it just talks about something that I personally have an irrational fear about, even though I'm not there in life yet, you know? Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think that it's important 
I mean, neither Maggie nor I have had children yet. We're both pretty young in our lives. But I do think that like that's an important concept and that is something that we know a lot of women struggle with and don't talk about enough. So even just anticipating that is probably having the opportunity to relate is probably powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I think it was just, it was nice for me because I'm also in a similar sort of situation, not where I'm married, but I'm like getting to that point in my life where I am starting to become more domestic and starting to like re reevaluate my value system. And so, yeah, this story was interesting for those reasons because she she she's a being that's dependent on other people and i feel like as we've talked about in our first episode you know a lot of us feel guilty as women for being dependent on other people but hopefully we can all come to a place where we feel powerful and can still be dependent on other people because you need people and relationships not necessarily romantic relationships but you need relationships in order to be a happy full human And I think part of the reason I liked this story was because it wasn't just the romantic story, which as we've talked about a lot of, I mean, this book is about relationships between women and their significant others, Uh, mostly men, but gay isn't a female-female relationship and it does feature some of those as well. Um, Gay isn't a female-female relationship? She's engaged to a gay, Roxanne Gay is, I think identifies as being a lesbian. Wait, really? I know Carmen Maria Machado is married to a woman. Me, can we check? Yeah. Can we fact check? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, Roxanne Gay and Debbie Millman are engaged, but she's really yeah. is she bisexual though? Because I feel like I've heard interviews with her talking about men. I'm pretty sure she identifies as being a lesbian. Oh, interesting. Oh no, the more you a, know. No, I'm sorry, she's openly bisexual. You're right. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. But yeah, that's... And now we all know. And now we all know. <laughs> Although we'll edit that for clarity. <laughs> we'll edit some of that out. <laughs> yeah. But having said that, that was something I loved about this, is that it goes outside of that. And we see her friends a little bit, and we see her relationship with her sister. And like I think that this takes Dependent in a almost a, like a positive light because it's not talking about I think dependency necessarily in the sense that like her husband is the breadwinner and she stays at home like there's a little bit of that in there they are in a very traditional gender roles family but I think that they're talking about dependency also in just like the emotional sense that being independent doesn't mean being an emotional island um, yeah and that it's okay to feel like you need other people in your life to get through things. And I think that part of the reason it gets complicated when her twin gets pregnant is because her twin seems to be one of the people that she was depending on to get through this experience. And now the roles have to switch. So like, let me pull up the scene really fast where they're talking, her and her sister are talking on the porch and okay. Page 186. Do you read books? Do you live by small bodies of water surrounded by trees and other wildlife? Is that geese shit? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you have found a home here at the Brook Reading Podcast. Each week, I read a book while nestled in my small New Jersey apartment and gaze out the window at a brook. Then I jump online, talk about it, ask for your opinions, and bitch about something for approximately five minutes. If you would like to join this madness... Check out the Brook Reading Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or on the Radio Public app. Let's step into some animal feces together. Her belly grows and grows and grows. Her ankles swell. She walks slower and slower, holding her lower back. Her skin still glows. Toward the end of March, we sit on the porch. It won't be long before she gives birth. She says, I love this thing inside of me, but I want it out. She stretches her legs and groans, then leans against my shoulder. She takes my hand and holds it over her stomach, covering my hand with hers. She says, you are a knife. She is asking me something. Her belly is firm and warm, and I can feel the baby moving around in its amniotic sac. The child is a boy or a girl. The child is strong. Its mother has two hearts. She asks, What is it like giving birth? 
I say, it feels like something wild is tearing your body from the inside out. She closes her eyes, squeezes my hand harder. The scar across my belly splits open and blood dampens my shirt, but I sit still. I sit with my sister. She needs this from me. So I think that part of the difficulty here and part of like the anger and resentment she feels is that she is not ready to be in this position of advisor and friend for her sister as she's going through this, but she has to be because the experience is happening now, you know, like it can't, it's not happening at an emotionally convenient time for her when she can feel healed from her own experience, if that makes sense. That does make sense. But I I think that that makes the dependency between the two of them both harder and more realistic to read about, right? Because sometimes you have to put aside your own feelings for someone you care about to take care of them when they need it, you know? But then I also think it can sometimes be damaging because there probably is a pressure in that situation to do that because your sister has been there for you and now you feel like you need to do the same for her even if you're not ready. So I had a lot of conflicting feelings about that paragraph, but I felt like it was also really powerful. Roxanne Gay is just such a beautiful writer. (laughs) It's almost hard to get into the meat of things because the stuff is just so aesthetically gorgeous. It is very beautiful. Yeah, so I'm wondering if we take the themes that we've already talked about in terms of dependence versus independence. Perhaps what the story is telling us is that in order to be vulnerable and to have people in your life, you're going to have to experience some pain because you have to take on equal emotional labor and taking on emotional labor makes you vulnerable to pain. Is that, what do you think? Yeah, I think those sentences (laughs) make sense. Good sentences. (laughs) One of the other themes that comes back again and again is life and death. From the beginning of the story to the end, we see that like death or even just the metaphor of death is necessary in this story to create life. It's necessary for our main character to save her sister. There's actually, maybe I'll read that passage. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. All right, let's see. Well, while you look, I guess I'll just offer my thoughts on that concept. I think it's interesting because our main character ends up being almost placed in a godly position because after she experiences a death that she can't control and has to face down her own death and all other situations, she is directly involved in whether or not someone is, is living. Um, yes. with the deer, right? Like that's where we open with the drunk driver. She makes the decision to cut his heart Kill out him. to save her sister after he hits them. Um, and her sister is, is like clearly dying. And then with her sister again, when she performs a fingernail C-section, which sounds funny, but like is, is the magical realism aspect in the book. She, she goes in and she cuts the baby out of her. And then it's not until the end of the story that we find out what actually happened to the main character that we see her be out of a position of control in the life or death situation because in all other cases she is the one who is in charge so to speak she is the surgeon's knife or in the case of the dude (laughs) kind of the harbinger of death um so i thought that was a really i didn't even know what to make of that honestly because she's in this godly position as mother almost as bringer and and taker of lives but then can't save her baby and barely is able to like save herself, you know, as the knife. Yeah, exactly. In reference to that, she says, I am not a knife. When she's originally talking about the scar, the first time we see it, her quote is, I am not a knife. And that's the first time we see it because I am a knife is repeated over and over and over it's again. It's the only time she says that she's not a knife. So let's come back to that in a second, because I want to, at the end, talk about maybe after this conversation what we think that means, that goddamn phrase. But I found the passage. So this is after the car crash with the drunk driver. I pressed two fingers to my sister's neck. She was born seven minutes after me. 
She could not die before me. Her pulse was even weaker. Her heart was dying. My heart was dying. I cut the drunk driver's chest open. I am a knife. I reached into his body, wet and warm, and I pulled out the heart he did not deserve. I felt no sadness or mercy for him as the slick organ throbbed in the palm of my hand. I cut my sister's chest open. I am a knife. I put his heart into her chest next to her heart. The two hearts nestled together and began beating as one. I am a knife. I pulled the flaps of skin back over her open chest and said a silent prayer as her skin fell back into place. I held my sister in my arms until help came. I kissed her forehead and whispered acts of contrition into the night air so she would know she was not alone. I kept her warm and safe. So that was the imagery about the womb that I was talking about earlier. So yeah, you're right. She does act as mother and harbinger of death. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm wondering if there's a metaphor with the two hearts, kind of within our dependency, independency, independence <laughs> thing that we've been talking about. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, uh, at the very least, between her and her twin sister, it's it's a metaphor for, like, they are, you know, you know like, two, two people, but, like, in one body sort of circumstance in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. But I think also that metaphor kind of only goes so far because of all of the stuff she inevitably feels when her sister gets pregnant. Right. And is like suddenly living the life that she wants. Like the part where she and her husband are um, having sex. They have sex so many times in 10 pages. Like can we just <laughs> It's really. This is also a hot story. Roxanne Gay. It's real impressive. <laughs> she writes for us horny people. I know, right? <laughs> With my sister around, the house feels less empty. She makes a small home for herself in one of our empty rooms. Her stomach swells and her skin glows. I often catch her walking around our property, humming to herself, holding her belly. She is changing. I am not. Sometimes I catch my husband staring at her. When he notices me watching him, watching her, he blushes, looks away guiltily. One night we are lying in bed. We have just made love and he is still lying on top of me. He is still inside me. He brushes my hair out of my face and kisses me hard and I kiss him back and we bruise each other with her mouths. He says, I wish we could take the child growing in her and put it inside you where it belongs. I hate him for saying this. I love him for saying this. This is also the point in the story where they seem to become, in many ways, two separate beings from that accident. Like, where this metaphor to me starts to break apart. Because before that, even though they were living different lives in the sense that one of them was married and one of them wasn't, in many ways, I think their circumstances probably were pretty similar, right? Like, they were both two adult women doing what they wanted, essentially, living the life that they wanted. And then this, like, profound physical change that happens for one sister can't happen for another and not by her choice. And that's where I feel like we see them start to break away. And, like, there's even a point when she's helping her sister give birth where she talks about the fact that her sister trusts her because she's a knife. And there's, like, an implication there that she maybe shouldn't, you know? Like, she should, but also there is part of her that is so angry that this is happening that, like, she's not happy for her, you know? Yeah. I mean, she is happy for her, but at the same time, yeah, she's hurting. A lot, yeah. And angry and vengeful. It reminds me a lot, Maggie and I recently talked about in the last episode, um, adulthood rights, humans' limits to intimacy, and what you're saying kind of reminds me of that. Like, maybe this is how our main character feels. Our main character feels like she is one half of, like, two beings, that she is, like, one one part of a whole, but in reality, we're all humans and we're all limited by our individual experiences and we can't ever reach that true intimacy that we're seeking. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's just, I don't know, it's really sad and it's really hard. It's like it all culminates to this point of like labor and giving birth where one lives and one dies, you know? Like it's it's this profound shift in intimacy for them, right? Because even up to that point, the narrator can still understand, right? She went through her whole pregnancy. She went through labor. It's like that moment when the child is actually brought into the world that like these things split apart. And all of a sudden, like if we're talking about heartbeats, right? Like potentially then the shifting point is when all of a sudden her sister has a third heartbeat introduced, right? She's pregnant. There's a baby involved. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's sad. But it's also maybe things that she is putting on her sister, right? Like, she doesn't have two hearts. She has her one heart. She put the second heart in her sister, so. Yeah. So, have we grappled with her self-pain thing? Do we have judgments about that, or are we just going to, like, let that be? I don't feel like I feel comfortable commenting on it just because I I don't know what it would be like to go through that experience and I can only imagine how heart-wrenching something like that would be and so I feel like I don't want to like I don't want to come off as judgmental for how she reacts to like one of the most traumatic things she's probably ever been through you know yeah no I agree I'm just wondering if we can evaluate it, like whether or not it's healthy, because as we've discussed, we kind of both like some of the position. We like that she's like taking agency to put herself in the position, but it's got that dark undertone of pain coming at it. So I just, I I just don't know what to make of it. I don't know what the moral is. And I hate not knowing what the moral is. I don't think there is a moral for this story. I think also the way she deals with that trauma also reads to me as realistic because it's not healthy, but it's also for the most part, not like a hundred percent like self-destruction mayhem. Right. Like, and I feel like that's how most people ultimately end up dealing with trauma is it's not the best way to do it, but it's also not the worst way to do it. And you end up somewhere kind of in the middle. Yeah. And that's where I feel like she ends up in dealing with it. So what do we think being a knife is then? What is her definition of a knife? I don't know, because the whole I am not a knife thing, like, fucks everything else over, you know? Like, the fact that there are positions where she can stop being a knife yeah in a world of magical realism where like part of her being a knife is like literally being a knife you know well can we just like say that i don't i mean is this too simplistic if we're like it's her place of power it's like it's her agency she's a knife when she has agency when she's like wielding a weapon yeah i don't think that's too simplistic i think that's what's up because like we were talking about before like every instance where she's in a knife she's she's in control yeah and the one instance where she's not a knife she has no control you know so i think you're right in like the most basic terms that's what it is to be a knife is to have the power of decision making and to wield it in big and small ways yeah and to have the power to harm others too or to save others yeah or I guess even yourself, because it's it's like she's using the knife against herself at times. I mean, she does. She literally, she cuts into her palm. She cuts into her husband's thigh. So, yeah. Hmm. I, I guess, yeah, just her agency and her decision making. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, no, I was just thinking about in some of those scenes, whether there's like an accidental danger to her being a knife, like when she grips her husband's thighs or something. But you're right. I think that because this is like. I, I think she hurts her husband on purpose, usually when she hurts him. And there's uh, times when she does it when she's not necessarily doing it with her fingernails, but she marks him and stuff too. They have a, 
it's a part of their weird relationship. When she's mad at him, she like beats on his chest and stuff. So yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, it's just it's just a story about self punishment in the face of trauma. So like he gets roped into that. Yeah. For reasons of guilt and like how he feels about himself, for how she feels about him, which is I think kind of nebulous throughout the story because she very clearly does love him and care about him and she wanted this future with him but like also she doesn't ever really verbally express in the story how she feels about the scenario in the car and like the fact that they didn't make it to the hospital and stuff to him and so it's left as this kind of like outburst situation with him like when she beats on his chest or when she grips his thigh or something like Mm -hmm. interesting okay do we have anything else we want to say about this story i don't think so just because it's only 10 pages but (laughs) it's 10 pages that are worth reading my friends read the whole goddamn book yeah, it's true. There's a reason we keep coming back to it. Every story in it is is worth talking about. I guess to go back to questions that we've asked about the other three stories mm-hmm. that are in here, do you think this one is a feminist story? No. No? <laughs> no, I think it, it it's the same as the other stories that we've read in that it's like, it's about a relationship between a man and a woman. And I think it kind of deliberately questions what modern feminist like modern feminist dogma almost not to sound too like feminazis you know but like i was saying before the idea of codependency is it really something in the western feminist world or like the white feminist world which is the one i'm most accustomed to as a white lady is really focused on that much or it's kind of interesting yeah i don't know what do you think i think i feel conflicted about it because in many ways, I do really identify with this main character and like also identify and the choices she makes and why she makes them and then also identify as a feminist. But I think that ultimately you're right and it probably isn't. I This is a whole book of short stories that deal with feminist topics, but not always in a feminist way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like it questions a lot of assumptions and norms, like you were saying that what we talk about as feminism today is but I actually really like that about it so like I agree with you that it's not but in a very worthwhile way yeah and I mean I guess we could then we could argue yeah that it is because it's all about her choices but yeah it doesn't it's not like or, or that it could be, like, lurking feminism almost, but not quite, because Roxane Gay does identify as a feminist. I just think, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's subversive to what we normally think of as feminist or, like, the big sort of feminist dogmas. Not that feminism really even has dogma, except for let's all be equal, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, as we've talked about, if you haven't listened to our other episodes about these stories, Gay herself has said that, like, her goal was not to write about necessarily, like, feminism. (laughs) She just gets roped into that, especially because she wrote the book Bad Feminist. And she's a feminist figure. Like, she does, she has done a lot of important work. And I would argue that, yes, this book is important work within... I don't know. I don't know. I guess, could it be in, like, the feminist genre? Or, no, it's about relationships and how much do relationships play into feminism? And I think at the very least, if you think of yourself as a feminist, it is worth reading this collection of short stories and evaluating where you stand on all of them. Because something that Gay does really well is boil down how different people think about these topics And I think a lot of how we think about relationships, especially for women, ends up being strongly related to feminism. Yeah. So I think it's just worth reading these stories and just seeing where you personally fall, you know? I think that it makes you think about feminist topics at the very least when you read these stories, even if it's not necessarily pushing you one way or the other. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, like, as someone who is pretty entrenched within the feminist canon or, like, feminist ideals within 
my societal context, I would say like it definitely make yeah, it makes me think about feminist topics and it's also really easy to read from a feminist lens. Yeah. Yeah, I know. What are you reading right now, Maggie? <laughs> I'm reading, I'm still reading Mad Ship by Robin Hobb, and I'm reading Obsidio by Amy Kaufman and Jay Kristoff. Oh, that's very awesome. What am I reading is, is my next comment. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was trying to ask you. Uh, what are you reading? Um, I'm actually in between books. I finished The Daughters of Temperance Hobbs, and I was going to go to the library today, but now I think it's too late. And uh, I haven't started a new book yet because I am still reading Imago and I don't want to get too distracted because I kind of got distracted with the daughters of Temperance Hobbs. Mm. Yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. Because next week we are finishing up our series of episodes on Lilith's Brood by Octavia E. Butler with Imago. So check it out next Monday. It's coming your way. It is coming your way. It's going to be awesome. What's your homework for today, Maggie? I need to be kinder to myself as I'm dealing with my life. <laughs> that's a good, that's good homework. I need to not do what this lady does, you know? Yeah. I think I'm going to be more, it's funny because the the path listeners, which you'll soon learn about that my life is taking is not this, but like, I think I'm going to be more accepting of myself and maybe like my less quote unquote feminist decisions, even though I I think I'm still objectively making pretty feminist decisions within the feminist canon. So (laughs) in a personal way, I'm going to try and be kinder to myself and like be more okay being dependent on people. Kind of like Maggie's homework. I stole it again. I did that to you last week too. It's just because I keep getting to go first. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Rain review us on iTunes, please. We'll send you a sticker. We will send send us an email with your stuff. Yeah, we'll send you stickers. Anything else? No, have a good week, friends. Okay, bye, friends. Bye. You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.